0: Oh, it started slowly, but now the barrage of pills keeps growing and growing. Probiotics, collagen, krill, omega-3s, vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc, alvebrain. This is Eyeball, and I'm your host, John Loomis. And today we are joined by my good friend, Timothy Archibald, the wonderful photographer and photography educator. And friends, this conversation is so rich, so full, and so long that we had to break it into two parts, and so today we hear part one in which we get down on some photo magic, on creativity as an escape, on loving your tripod. We discuss craft as both virtue and roadblock, and achieving creative buy-in with subjects. Even when you have a sense of like what you're doing, you don't know what you're doing with the, you know, it's, it's a, it's a moving target. Yeah. 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 Can you hear my uh, kids upstairs? Yeah. Yeah. It brings back memories. A little bit. Yeah. We'll see how much they interfere. Talking is fine. The, the running around in circles will be less than fine, but we'll (laughs) see. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) My wife is doing home. She's doing homeschool right now. They're creating their own country. I think is the name of the game. Oh, nice. She's very creative. Nice. Yeah.
1: Nice, nice, nice. That would have uh, broke me. Uh, I will admit the At, homeschool. Uh, well, that, uh, taking the kids to Disneyland and trying to shoot a story on that, that would have broke me. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. No child raising was hard. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Child raising is hard. It's hard for me. It's something we're definitely going to talk about. It's funny you say that cause you've also become sort of an icon for digging in and turning things personal. Today, we're excited to be joined by the TPN, self-proclaimed Total Photo Nerd, Timothy Archibald. I, oh, that's me. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a part of, I mean, I've known you, but Total Photo Nerd is a, is a leap for me. I know you love photography, and I know that you love loving things. What In what way does your nerddom express itself, or is that a sort of a thing that you wrote years ago that's sort of just been the thing that's on the profile?
1: Both of those things. Hey, thank you for having me here. I love this podcast. It's cool to be on it. You know, I wrote that when my agent wanted me to write a bio. I was trying to come up with something accurate. And I do think that I never really thought of myself as like a commercial photographer or an editorial photographer or a newspaper photographer when I did that. I always thought I was just this like photo nerd who liked, I liked photo books, I liked other photographers' work. I like talking about photographs. I like making photographs. So I I always thought, oh, well, no, that probably fits. And then I felt like there were so many people at that time, which might have been 10 years ago, that wanted to present themselves as a commercial force who will deliver your ad campaign to you. And I didn't want it to be that. I wanted to turn down the volume a little bit on how I presented
0: it. The not slick. Yeah. Your profile does turn the volume down. I love how it resets expectations right from the very beginning.
1: Oh, good, good. Uh, I didn't think it was anything special at the time. I'm actually surprised that you uh, are even commenting on it.
0: It's one of those things I like checking out. I was talking this week with another buddy, and I looked at their website, and I haven't looked at their website in 15 years. Right. I don't think I've ever read your bio. I just knew you, and you first got my radar I don't know, is it is it twenty years ago with your sex machines project? Is that twenty years ago?
1: Oh man, that was too That was published in two thousand and five, and I worked on it for three years previous to that.
0: Right. So we're, we're coming right up on that. I love this. You get a your sense of someone, and obviously we all have different selves and different personalities and roles we play. Oh yeah. But then you also get the official version and the unofficial version, and this and that and the other. Some people are more cagey and canny with how they do all this, but. Total photo nerd. I, I didn't know if that's how I feel about you, but what I do totally think is right in line with how I see the thoughtfulness and intelligence and in way you work and live was the awareness of self versus industry that was immediately apparent in your approach to bringing people into. Here's why you're here. Here's who. Here's who I am. Here's what's going to happen if we start to work together. Ah, oh, interesting. I think that I thought that was very interesting. You know, I don't know if you read your profile recently, but it says human four times in the course of (laughs) three paragraphs, which I think is, is good. I mean, I think that's it's important to you. Like your work to me is all about connection.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: There's a very clear sense that you're in a room with someone and that you're both these warm bodies inhabiting a space. And that's a lot of part of this evidence that ends up happening later. Does human mean anything important to you or humanity or photography's connection to people itself?
1: Oh, it's interesting. You focus on that. Yeah. It's almost like such a part of uh, maybe what I do that I don't even label it anymore or something like that. But I mean, I, I would say that there was an era where I was trying to be a commercial photographer, you know, focusing really on that. The big production and using all these different people, using many assistants, and using either the hair and makeup and and models that we hire. Though I wanted to work in that realm, there was a feeling to me that oh, I can't work with all these people here. I got to figure out how to how to <laughs> how do I make my picture amidst all this? There was that idea. I think someone reminded me. It was a friend or, or an agent or something. They said, ah, "Don't worry about those things. You'll figure out a way to connect with the person and." you'll be able to move forward from there. And that comforted me at the time because photography is a performance. Very much so. And in the different types of photography that you do, there's a different type of performance and you can get really freaked out about what needs to (laughs) come out. But I think that with me, when I could figure out that, well, I just need to connect with this person and then we we can work the other parts down from there that would comfort me. And that would give me that little bit of confidence that you need to move forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, confidence is a huge part of the whole equation. I think what you've done very well, and maybe this is part of that process of figuring out how to make these moving parts work, is that even on commercial jobs, as we discussed before, I recently talked to Greg Miller, and I think he's one of the brilliant people of all time of making the personal commercial and the commercial personal. Oh, yeah. But you do a great job of making these big sets, these big commercial jobs, you do a great job at just sizing it all down to human pieces. Even if it's a big campaign for a really big company, it becomes a very, it's very focused. A lot of the results of your commercial work feel very much like your photographs, which is a trick unto itself. It's hard to do.
1: Yeah, I would agree. It's really hard to do. I embrace the word simple. Simple. I mean, because simple to me kind of means that you figured out what you wanted to say and said it in kind of the most clear way. I mean, there's the shot list that photographers are given for these commercial jobs. There's this idea or even for an editorial job. Here, we want it to look like this, if it's a photo illustration or something. And really, these things are ridiculous. And there's people who are in offices who who are deciding what they want the thing to look like. And so I think at one point, I was kind of like, well these things don't have to look just like this. We're just, it's a suggestion or it's steering or if you could surprise them, it might be better. I think any attempt I ever had to like make it look like the comp, it was always a failure on my part. I couldn't make my photograph or I couldn't bring the humanity to it or whatever they would need out of me. And I couldn't really deliver that in that situation.
0: Yeah, I always thought... It's more of a, you know, a mile marker. I'm looking at it like a map. You know, I need to hit this town on the way, but the ultimate destination is mine. I think surprise is a really important word here. And talking with our mutual friend, Andrew Hetherington recently, he reminded me of the thing that Chris Buck did so well and continues to do, I'm sure, is that whatever the job was, he came back with something that was wildly surprising to what the idea had originally been. He had the thing they talked about. He had the other thing. There's the cool thing here. And there was always something never remarked upon that was just a total gift. And that arrived in the box of prints. And that's such a powerful, not only promotional tool, but just a powerful piece of inspiration to say to a client and to another creative person, look what I found that we can, now take as a departure point to then collaborate together in the future on the layout with the designers in every other possible way. I think as you build your career in terms of points of inspiration, then ultimately you're so much more in control of the creative process because you're brought in earlier and earlier and earlier. Therefore, potentially the comps are your own work and you're trying to work in a similar process, not knowing what you'll find. Instead of like I've experienced so many times, hey, can it look like this? And You're like, well, probably not. That subject is X, Y, and Z. Our subject is B, Q, and F. This environment is totally different. You know, a million things are different about what you want. And don't even really understand why you pulled this picture. It doesn't have any relationship to what we're doing. But will I do my best to deliver a quality image? Yeah, I mean, for sure. That's that's why we're all here. But the comp, the comp thing is so crazy. Commercial work largely is still, you know, even this many years of my career is kind of a mystery to me. Some of the time, the things that have worked, worked kind of cleanly and things that didn't work. I had no idea what they wanted. I still don't know what they wanted years later after having seen the campaign they actually ended up using. Some of the moving pieces of that commercial world still remain a mystery.
1: Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, I always had this belief that there are photographers who live and breathe commercial photography and their work is a perfect fit and their skill set is a perfect fit for that world. It's almost like their personal work is commercial work. And mm-hmm. you know, like Eric Almas is one of the photographers who has that. And it's beautiful and it's great. And it's always beyond probably expectations and there's surreal qualities to it. For me, there was never that. I never was the one who like lived and breathed commercial photography. Right. It was almost as if there was a truck and it was trying to back into that parking spot of commercial photography and it didn't exactly fit. And there was a lot of obstructions and there was a lot of things in the way. And then it was like, you think it'll fit in? I don't know. Is it, is it, is it going to fit? <laughs> you know? No, it's not going to fit. Oh, man. It, like that is the way I always saw my role in commercial photography.
0: Which should be a real bummer to anyone who's trying to get their first big commercial job, having you having done a lot of significant jobs, you still don't know if you're the right fit for it. Maybe things have changed so much that it's not even uh, the real problem coming next. The the new real problem is something else to be solved first. I was very aware when I was looking at your work and, you know, we've talked many times throughout the years But you seem to have been in search of a certain career path that you thought was out there, but elusive to you. And I wonder, as a contemporary of yours, if our generation, in the last 20 years of professional photography, has there really been a career path for any of us? Or were we all just out there like pirates making our own way? Because, you know, if you look further back, we look in the 70s and 80s, there were some pretty firmly established, like, you do this and you kind of figure out that. Then you go here. You and I did a sort of kind of a little bit of overlapping. You know, Your work in Phoenix came several years before I myself was in Phoenix working for, the, working for the Republic. There are certain parallels, but in general, our peers who have been successful, I don't think any of us saw like, okay, well, I'll do this next. We hoped, we dreamed, but I really think that our generation has been charting a their own path every step of the way. I don't know if there was a path. We, were, we thought there might be, but I don't know if there ever was.
1: Oh, uh, that's interesting. No, I would agree that you and I have had overlapping paths to a degree. If I was to create a map, which I, what doesn't exist anymore, but back in the, say, era of the 90s, someone would assist or they would work for a newspaper and they would develop a voice in that era. Then they would go out on their own and try to be a commercial photographer or they would be an editorial photographer. And the golden age of editorial, where there was a lot of work in that, you could just do that. People wanted to be Annie Leibovitz or they wanted to be Mark Seliger. And there's those models out there and kind of ways to achieve that. Right now, I think the models are all different, you know, and I think talking to right. young photographers now, I don't think they even know who Mark Seliger is, really. You know what I mean? Really? Yeah, kind of. Leibowitz seems to carry, uh, people know who Annie Leibowitz is.
0: Yeah, mostly from her books now or masterclasses or whatever the things are.
1: I think she's more in the public eye and museums have shows of their work where, say, Seliger, who was someone who I always thought was a great portrait photographer. Truly great. He doesn't seem to work as hard to be in the public eye or be in museums or, you know, he doesn't seem to work that aspect of things.
0: Maybe not yet. Maybe it's one of the career paths he's looking for. You know, who knows? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, it's hard to say. And what people want out of photography, I always had this belief that really in photography, you could get whatever you wanted. It seems unsurmountable and it seemed like a very hard path or a hard way to reach various people. But once you're when you were in the mix, it seemed like, well, if you wanted like a famous critic to write something for your book, you could just call him up and he'd probably be open to it. Like, like it wasn't like trying to reach Martin Scorsese and ask him to do something like,
0: right. There was a democratic sense what you're already inside. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you and I kind of started photography in a similar era of our own lives. You know, you were, I believe 14. I was about that maybe 15 when I picked up a camera. And for me, it kind of felt a little bit easy and also had this access to people's lives in this special way that, felt unfamiliar and special. For sure. What was the poll initially for you? Was there something about photography? Was it the dark room? Was it the chemicals? Was it the access? Well, you know, was it the parties? What was what was the thing that, that drew you in?
1: <laughs> it was the parties. Absolutely. No. <laughs> what parties are you referring to?
0: <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking of someone else's career maybe. Uh, you know, Andy Hetherington had the he told me this line. He wanted to be on the touchlines, he wanted to be at the parties. I was like, that sounds great. Where were those? I don't oh, go to those. Yeah, no,
1: he did say that. Yeah. Um, ah, that's interesting because later in the blogging era, he kind of created his own party. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In a way. So a- as a kid, I think I was never really good at anything. It, like I wasn't good at sports and I wasn't really sociable or I wasn't funny or and, any of those things. But I, I there's nothing, I, I couldn't really find anything I was good at. And then with photography, though, suddenly I kind of. Felt like, oh, I know how to do this. And oh, I can use this. It was an excuse to maybe learn about the world that I couldn't really learn about. And as I say all these things, I think it sounds cliched, really. So, I mean, photographers' origin stories, you know, they're almost, it's almost like a cliche, you know, if you were to create it.
0: It is a cliche. It's not an exciting Marvel ready opportunity cliche, to my knowledge. Although I guess Peter Parker is a photographer, right? So,
1: Peter Parker was a photographer,
0: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also uh, could fly through the air using his web slingers. It is a cliche. We are similar. Most of our tribe has a lot of connection. I wonder about those origin stories to some degree because the momentum of them does define a lot of the why in terms of the artistic drive. There is power and intention and attention. And it's interesting, especially in over our era that we've really bounced around a lot of these different commercial and, Editorial interests and telling these stories and rubbing against these brands while sometimes not being paid by them. And, you know, we've had this weird sort of interesting meandering journey. And I'm happy for it. Happy, you know, for me now, the reason why is meeting people and being out in the world. That to me is special. The craft of photography is still special to me, but in different ways than it ever was before.
1: Hey, is it more important or less important?
0: The craft. Yeah. Um. I think the pieces that are important change. You know, the, the some pieces become easy, and you maybe you undervalue them. Like lighting, to me, right now, is a little bit stale. It, it not not the need to light or the desire to light for my clients. I w- I would imagine that probably soon should should there ever be any assignments in the future for myself or any other magazine photographer, I'll start blowing that up, the, my lighting style, because mm-hmm. it's gotten to a point where it just comes up, you know, I'm just like, okay, bing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's six lights or four lights or whatever it's gonna be that, that day. That always makes me uncomfortable. But I, I kind of like that when it's way off, because then you have to say, okay, well, like, what can I fix? And then you're solving some problems and you're making some choices. When it's already good enough, you're off to the next part and you've missed some of the steps that you might have defined what today is going to look like and be different and how it's going to feel. And uh, so all the pieces of photography are still important to me. The things that's most important is the connection to subject, the interest in telling stories and the new ways in which I'm able to see that could be telling stories. That is to me the most critical part. And hopefully the part where I'm mining my creative life and, reaching out to further make more dynamic.
1: That's an interesting observation. I mean, I think we can all agree that photography has technically gotten easier. Much. It's just easier. And I think that, you know, there was a whole legion of photographers who were like, didn't like that because it, took away the craft. You know, Eh, myself, Mm -hmm. I never cared about the craft. I thought that when it got easier, it just allowed us all to focus on what's important. And it also gave voice to people who maybe weren't oriented in that kind of technical
0: way. Also, if if you feel like it got easier, blow it up or make it harder. I mean, if you're missing X, Y, or Z, pull out the eight by 10, start shooting on some film with almost no latitude, process it yourself. I mean, (laughs) there's ways there's a million ways you can complicate this not to mention it comes at the computer you know depending on what i did or what i didn't do or how i'm feeling i'm trying to get this out the door to the client i don't have much time i'm also juggling being a dad and being at home and doing this and doing that and making dinner and i'm like you know it still doesn't feel that easy some of the time so there are definitely parts of this which i have no idea you know my photoshop skills ended in like I don't know, 2002, right? That's what I, whatever yeah, yeah. Photoshop that was. That's what I know. Right. And if I need more than that, I have a Zach Vitale for that. You know, I have a guy, have a guy and he has guys, but they need more than that. And, you know, I don't want to become expert in more pieces. I hear what you're saying in terms of the easy part. I, I'm glad that some of it became easier that allows certain people who weren't quite technically minded to express themselves through visual arts because totally. that's the point. I mean, I could could agree with some of the get off my lawn people who, (laughs) you know, want a certain amount of sweat equity in a product. And also, there is a joy, as I've told my kids a lot, in a job well done. Just knowing that you put what you could into this thing outside of anyone's expectations or how it was received or I do like doing the job well because there was a job there to be done well. That's important to me. So that's outside of all this other stuff as well.
1: Oh, well, that's that's like the golden rule that applies to whether you're mowing a lawn or, or, you know, making dinner or like, yeah, I mean, there's that. I don't know if the craft getting easier really relates to what that anecdote that you just shared.
0: No, no, I, I don't think it does. But I think that some of the people who are upset about things getting easier and more people being able to just kind of fake it. Right. That's what they're actually talking about. They're talking about a lack of professionalism.
1: Oh, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember one of these people who carries this view saying like, oh, I went to a gallery and I saw like these were digital prints and there was pixels in the prints. And so, you know, like the quality of that had gone down. And so, no, I I do understand those things. But I guess we all have these things that we value. I used to have this idea that photographers were kind of these mystical beings, like say someone whose work I would really like, like say Larry Fink, you know, like, His, I had always admired his work, and then I I took a workshop from him when I was young, and I thought he was like oh, this cool. kind of mystical being who would have these these insights into people and these insights into moments and had this knowledge about the, the human condition. And then only recently, like say this year, <laughs> suddenly I had this idea of, eh, these people They were just manipulating pixels or they were just (laughs) manipulating like film grain. They were just knowing where to hold the flash and they knew like when to capture an expression.
0: Or even more so, they were bold enough to make people interact with them in a way that revealed or maybe created something. Or they were only this tall and so there was an angle. (laughs) Or they didn't quite know how to get, you know, the right amount of feathering out of their flash so that there was a thing. There's just a million things that for whatever reason worked for this guy or that guy or this woman or that one. Like, I mean, many careers have been made in that way and there's nothing wrong with that. It is weird. That's some, a process that's important to me. I I like when, you know, the so-called legends become more human and then we can actually see the work they did that was really special for it being really special. And then there's other things they did that they phoned in that are just garbage and it's okay that it's just garbage. Now, my problem with it is when we are so interested in the history or even the most recent history of photography that there's no room for current photography. You know, like I never, ever, I didn't need to see it again the last time for sure, but I never need to see Bruce Davidson's subway and a gallery ever again.
1: <laughs> Why? Let's just go
0: ahead and say, you know, I mean, God damn it. Printing technology surely has gotten better. So that it doesn't need to be quite so racistly printed anymore because it's all just like the darkest darks. Oh yeah, no, there's
1: a lot of darkness in that.
0: It's very dark. And I understand the subway was dark in the seventies. I get it. But the black people's pigment was, is not quite, you know, literally inky black. And then with like white eyeballs, like, you know, I I have my own issues with Bruce. I have my own issues with a lot of our heroes. I am much more interested in a you know, in celebrating a temporary photographer you know, pick, pick another Magnum photographer if you want. If you want to be, you know, sort of insular, great. I mean, let's put up an exhibition of of Mike Brown's work, or let's you know, like let's do Carolyn Drake. Or there's just so many good photographers and so much worthy work that the remining, and you know, it's not surprising because <laughs> every other part of our culture is doing the same thing. You know, like we're as likely to see a new Family Ties reboot as we are to see any new series, (laughs) it's so much more comforting to just return over and over and over again. But in my lifetime, I think I've seen three different versions of Bruce Davidson's Subway in a gallery.
1: That's interesting. It's just
0: like, Jesus, really? What? And not even Brooklyn Gang, which to me is the is the actual opus.
1: Yeah, no, I like that. Yeah. The, uh, I, you know, a lot of people, Subway speaks to a lot of people. It never spoke to me, although I like, I love Bruce Davidson's work in, in other projects and East 100 Street and all those things. Subway never yeah. spoke to me, but you never know what's going to speak to someone, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, the one thing I would say, let me finish that thought though, that idea of like photographers being these mystical beings who could interpret things. Oh, yeah. What I came to realize only just now, I think, like, you know, or this year is that they were just, yeah, people like any of us who knew how to like do the technical thing, but really it was the person that was special. Photography, I guess I used to think of photography as a religion or something like that, or as a spiritual path, as absurd as that sounds. And to me, it was my spiritual path. And I remember saying once to someone like, ah, I think there's a God of photography who smiled on me and gave me some career or something like that. And to me, it's a totally absurd.
0: Yeah. Uh, No, I think it's- It might be absurd, but why not? Is it any more or less absurd than anything else?
1: Because it's like saying like, uh, yeah, no, it's absurd because it's putting too much power into this mechanical craft. Yeah. But you could be passionate about what you're doing and we can all acknowledge some form of higher power, but to attach it, it would be like an x-ray technician saying, oh no, there's a god of x-ray technicians who has made it so that I can have this job at Kaiser Permanente or something like that. <laughs> like, let's not instill too much magic power into this thing. And let's bring it back to the humans who are like, like are in the midst of it.
0: Yeah. I know. I hear what you're saying. I will say as a counterpoint that every year, the Polish Catholic church on Easter coming up very fast, coming up probably before we even published this conversation, you bring in an Easter basket filled with the things that are important to your Easter table. So you have sausage, you have eggs, you have onions, you have spring onions you have mustard maybe and salt and pepper and the things you'll use to feed your family and it's blessed by the priest well i for years have been putting my sd cards inside the uh in the basket under the uh you know you usually put like a pretty cloth and then all the things in there well under there i'm just sliding in a little if there is photo magic give me some man i'll i'll take it i'm open to whatever whatever the answer is give me a little bit of it I don't. I don't. You know. I don't need to know the what sex it is, what gender it is, what religion it was attached to. I don't give a shit. Let's. Just, if there is magic, I'll have something. Please. Thanks.
1: I'm speechless. But I was there. <laughs> like I think that I used to view things that way. I wouldn't have put an SD card, but there would have been some like God of Photography. I'm praying to or something like that. Which now it just seems like. Do I pray to the God of Subway sandwiches as I'm making the Subway sandwiches that he makes the BLT, you know, the most excellent?
0: I'm sure there's someone at Subway feels like their, you know, their mayonnaise knife is being guided by God's loving hand. I don't, you know, who knows? Like, and if there is, bless them. That's fantastic. I mean, that to me is the reason why I love this job is I get to go in the world and meet people who completely unsarcastically will profess this belief or faith or grace or whatever else. I think it's the greatest thing about our world and our lives. You know, I, I love meeting people from wildly different schools of thought or backgrounds or jobs or anything. And just, this is, that's the cool. I love that's the best part. I, you know, I'm, I'm open to it. I mean, there are lots of other ways in which I'm very, very, very not open to religious things, but I'm totally open to that.
1: Ah, interesting. Well, there is this idea that when there's something that does not have a map to it, which is what the path of photography is, there's no way like no one can say, oh, this person found success this way. So I'll find success that way. That doesn't exist in photography. So when there's no map, it's very easy for things to just feel like a spiritual path. Right. But I think I always viewed it as a spiritual path until later in life. And now I, I, I'm just more careful what I identify as like spiritual and what I identify as like, in the power of the human or something like that.
0: No, I think that's an important distinction to be be made for yourself. And I, uh, I'm I'm with it. I, I understand what you're saying. And I, I was certainly a more fanatical devotee to the medium of photography, you know, at other points in my life. Right. You are also a devotee to a particular piece of equipment photography, which I have always maintained. And I mean, I own several of them, but I've always maintained how much I dislike them. But you use them, I think, on almost every job you do. What's that? Which is to say, the tripod. <laughs> oh, my hated tripod.
1: Oh, yeah, I love the tripod.
0: You love a tripod? Yeah. T- explain to me, oh, master of the tripod, what am I missing? I think uh, This is I, the only gear talk I can actually deal with on this kind of, on my podcast. Yeah, is, yeah, this yeah. tripod yeah. talk.
1: I, yeah, I hate gear. You know what I think it was? I was a big, before digital, I was a big Hasselblad shooter, big clunky mm-hmm. camera. And I really loved anchoring that Hasselblad wherever I wanted to shoot. And I thought it helped me kind of get everything lined up. And then I could like leave it and I could talk to the person. And I like to talk with my hands and I like to like engage with them. And so it just kind of allowed, here's me and the person. We're here and the camera's over there. The camera's this tool. It's over there. It's on that thing. We'll deal with that later, you know. And so I think it came back from there. You know, I think when I was a photojournalist working for a newspaper, it was all handheld things and it was all that. And I wanted to slow down in a way, but still Mm -hmm. I'm not patient enough for a four by five or an eight by 10 or anything like that. So it was a holdout for that. But then with digital, I got into, and again, I hate technique. Don't want to talk about technique, but I got into shooting with a relatively long lens and then stitching together images for a
0: oh, Okay. Trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so that allowed me to kind of do that with the kind of clinical precision that kind of came together. Yeah,
0: I can get behind that because there's literally no other way you can really do that. Not really. So, yeah, I mean, like that's that's a if you want to do that, you're going to be stuck with this.
1: Yeah, I think you can handhold it, but then it's going to get sloppier and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I don't mind slowing down. I remember doing a series of pictures like this and another photographer looked at them and said, what'd you shoot that with? I, I can't figure out what camera you shot that with. And I'm like, oh, wh- how, why? What's different about it? And he's like, no, you can tell. It either looks like a medium format or it looks like something different. He's like, I can't tell what it is, but it, it doesn't look like a straight picture.
0: That that means to me, like, perfect. Just the dissonance created there by another photographer is a reason enough to keep doing it. Well, yeah. <laughs> Just stay in the picture. What does it matter what I used to? There, there are people who want to learn like, okay, well, there's a look there. I mean, just receive the story. Don't, I mean, like, does not matter? You know, this is something that I've talked about a lot with social media. I hate that we are now answering all the questions. We ask a question through a piece of art. We immediately answer it with a too long caption. Mm. The question was the the gift. Like, don't answer the question. Just, just pose it. Mm. Let them reel around the question. Mm. It's something that I saw. And looking at one of the interviews you had given, that you received a hell of a compliment right in the same line. Your gift is to tell a story, but leave out the last sentence.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: No, I love that. What, line. A, what a beautiful line. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, that was uh, said to me by an art director when I was like, I think, 22 or 23. And it was one of those things where sometimes you receive a compliment, but you haven't achieved that yet. You know what I mean? Like it's an, it's a compliment about
0: at 22. I would have had no idea what the fuck they were talking about.
1: <laughs> it's like, I hadn't achieved that yet, but I, he knew, I think that I was aspiring to that. And then I think I tried to chase that. You know what I mean? Like if it's when you get a great photograph that you don't really know how you did, and then you chase it, you try to figure out how to make it yeah. again. That's kind of what that little exchange was.
0: To me, that's been an important process of me growing as a photographer, the accident accident that I then try to make, I understand the DNA of how it happened and then try to find whatever secret sauce there was in it for me to explore. Oh, that That to me is one of the, one of the things.
1: Yeah. And it's hard and it's very elusive and you never really get it. You know what I mean? You can't capture it, but it can lead you on the path to a new way of picture making or a new way of your images looking. And so it can lead you somewhere good, but it's not going to lead you to the same place. I don't think.
0: You seem to, I, know, I mean, I know this for a fact, you're very aware of the things that you can't see or can't give yourself in terms of surprise. You know, when faced with certain things in your career which came upon you, you saw that the curveballs were themselves gifts that you couldn't have given yourself a curveball to deal with. I feel the same way about my own career. Like, I can't confuse myself. I'm just, you know, I, I'm confused all the time. I can't confuse myself. When I get confused or when I give them a curveball they have to deal with in some special way, it's actually a really cool opportunity because then you're actually, you know, you're you're solving problems, you're doing the work and that unto itself is a special part of how we actually grow as artists and creatives.
1: Oh, that's well stated. Yeah. You couldn't like recreate the challenges that life gives you just to no. stay fresh. You, you have to, no one would do that or it's not really possible. You You have to maybe see it for what it is after you stop crying about it or something like
0: that. Yeah. I I mean, I I think to some degree we're capable of self-sabotage that makes things a little harder for no particularly good reason just to keep things a little fresh. Regardless, there's something else beyond the technical. Your work really shares a very specific tonality. It really seems like there's a certain mood and tone and quality of light that is you, that you're bringing things to when they're away from it and trying to continue to connect with over time. You know, you certainly like a a nice big giant barn doors of windows and available light, but even the pictures, which couldn't have been that because it's, you know, this is not what was available. Is it just you like the wash of available light or is tone important to you?
1: Huh. Uh, Define tone. Do you mean like what a color looks like or a mood or?
0: It's more of um, I describe it sort of as a quality of light, but also sort of as a white as almost like a white balance. There's an unusual amount in this way I see it of connection between your work for lots of different kinds of clients and lots of different kinds of circumstances. It's something which I've always struggled to maintain coherence through my breadth of the work I do. Mm-hmm. Partially because I shoot for different clients who have wildly different needs.
1: Yeah, I you know, I don't know. I mean, the one thing you might be responding to is that, oh, it was probably over the past five years, I started shooting 100% in natural light, unless it was something I had to light for like corporate job that we needed everything to look consistent or an advertising thing that we needed to have feel like natural light. But for a lot of the images that you're probably responding to, it's probably you know, primarily natural light. I used to use all strobes. And so I could come in and make a picture at any time, any day, because I would control it. I would light it. When I started to get into shooting all natural light, then I needed more cooperation from the subjects. You know, I need Mm, to be able to scout and be like, okay, for us to do this shot, we need to do it in this room at this time of day, you know, between this and this. Can you do that? And the more I started to ask and put the energy into it, the more they started to say yes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so maybe when you're identifying that kind of quality of light that's in these things, it's probably because it was something that like I scouted, figured out where to get that quality of light, tried to convince everybody that that's when we needed to do the shot
0: and then, you know, did it then. I like it. It's almost like engagement television or what do you what do you call the television people actually sit down for at a certain time. You're actually creating almost more of an event out of the photo shoot and you're getting a more active participant because you've created certain conditions in which it needs to be performing under.
1: Yeah, more buy in from the subjects, you know, yeah. and definitely like a lot of the stuff you're probably thinking about is editorial stuff. And these are things that I would scout a couple of days before, work it out with the subject's. PR person or whoever it is that here's where we need to do it and if it's on the street somewhere it's like here we need to do it on this street and this time of day so there's a lot of that going on rather than lighting it I'm finding the light and then <laughs> getting everybody to agree to do it at that time
0: in some ways I was very right you there is something you're identifying that's very important to the mood and then you finding the light itself instead of creating it and then you're you know you're inserting the room and the people into that into that environment part of it is that you're in a different part of the country than i am you know you have this cloudy diffuse but warm sort of you know angular thing in san francisco that you're working with a lot of the days
1: well geography i think has a lot to do with it though because like looking at your site which i looked at the other day in preparation for you being the guest artist you can look at and be like that's florida (laughs) that's dc like that, you know, areas have that quality of light. You can definitely tell when a photo is taken in Los Angeles. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, you can. and you can tell when something's taken in San Francisco. Like you can. The light is different.
0: Though if people stop driving in San Francisco and L.A. soon, you know, for several months at a time, that's going to change.
1: I d- no. It'll,
0: the haziness will totally get warped. It will be, people will be able to shoot new pictures.
1: It, yeah, it'll change everything. But I mean, the thing to keep in mind is that whole scouting then shooting type of thing. I think there was a period where I realized that uh, I wasn't happy with the assignments I was doing. You know what I mean? I was going in and reacting and I wasn't very good at reacting to things. And then it would Mm -hmm. be like, oh my God, well, we need to do it in this conference room. Oh, that conference room is booked because like two people are meeting there. And so I felt like I was going into shoots with a panic, thinking that my photo was important where the people I was photographing there was nothing to make them think that this was going to be an important photograph. Right. There was no lead in, there was no talk about getting the right spot or any of those things. And so when I started to take it more seriously and build in these scouting days and build in, here we're going to make an appointment and we're going to go around and then I'm going to get back to you about where we're going to shoot. It made everything seem much more important and it made it made everything smoother. It allowed me to like get up on the day of the shoot and know that part of the questions were solved. I still need to work with the person, and but I'm not panicking about all these other logistical things.
0: Part of what we're also saying, though, it could have been you really just kind of a musician asking for a certain kind of writer just to make them aware that you're coming and that they need to be prepared. And it's special, you know. You're basically asking for only green M and Ms or only you know certain color Skittles or you know you need a certain brand of water in the room. Like I totally have buy-in where you're talking about that having more subjects who are open to the process of collaboration with a artist would be a huge gift for me and for most photographers because it's so clear when you're there and you're thinking so many times you're like oh man you know what if i had this we could have had an opportunity to make a special picture
1: oh yeah yeah yeah
0: i really like what you're onto there with, in terms of like Building in collaboration. It, that's, a, that's a really cool idea. I hadn't really thought about that before.
1: Yeah, that. And the I guess the thing I would maybe correct you with is the, the rock star wanting only the green M&Ms taken out, that is a situation that makes the, the photographer seem important or the rock star seem important. I don't want that. I want to make the subject seem important. And so we're doing all this work so that we can make a beautiful photograph of you and to make your use your time wise. And to, you know, make this be an efficient yet great photograph for you. And so it wasn't about me. You know what I mean? It was about it was about. the subject.
0: Yeah, but now we're just exploring the various ways in which you are a much more kind and centered person than I am, which I'm OK with. I mean, that boat has already sailed. <laughs> Timothy Archibald is a very <laughs> kind person and he always has his focus on the right side of the equation. John <laughs> Loomis, not so much always, as my listeners already know.
1: I'm glad we agree on that.
0: Well, we yeah, I mean, got to. You went to Penn State. I had no idea.
1: Yep. I saw your Nittany Lions photos. Yeah. Yeah, I was an art major there. So I hated football and I hated the Nittany Lion and I hated it. All, it's a tough all place
0: stuff. to be in. To be in Happy Valley and hate football, it takes a amazing amount of effort because that is a place that is into their fall sports.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and the stadium is like the it's Roman the Coliseum or something
0: yeah. like that. It really is. And it's a great place to shoot a game, regardless of whether you like sports or not. There's so much (laughs) buy-in. When I shot that Nittany Lions story for ESPN the magazine, I was told, I was like, oh, you need to get there for Friday because there's a parade. And I was like, God (laughs) damn. Like, we're talking about wasting my fucking time. A parade the day before some like arbitrary college football game. Yeah. I could not have been more wrong. The parade was bananas. <laughs> there was like fifty thousand people on the streets of of College Station. Wait, College Station? Is that no? It's not it. Oh,
1: it's State College,
0: State College, right? So I've also shot four years in College Station, which is a holdover. It's much more of a military aspect. Uh, regardless, uh, man, the parade was it was off the chain. It was completely insane. Yeah, I don't think I had to buy more compact flash cards. Cause I think I just, I had my laptop with me so I was able to dump. I like, I think I filled my entire eight combat flash cards I had with me Yeah, for just the parade. And I had to like dump them all that night. So I was ready for the game the next day.
1: Oh yeah. 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 No, it's totally insane. Yeah. It was insane then too, but that's an easy, I mean, you don't see the art majors, you know, like go into the game.
0: Well, okay. And we well, hold on just as there are people who believe there is photo magic. there surely have been many art majors who were giant you know, Nittany lion fans,
1: the dumb ones. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Um, Talking about who's not open and who's kind.
1: I mean, it it was, it was a, you know, fraternities were big and I hated that. I mean, at 22 or 21, you hate a lot, you know what I mean? I hate a lot right now, but at that age I did. You draw your, you view the world much more binary, you know?
0: I don't know. My college life, I don't. Maybe you're the same situation. I chose a school where I didn't know a single person, and I, you know, went from Florida to Missouri, and I was, uh, I was really, um, I think, more pride open like an oyster than I was. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm very cynical. I was very sure of everything I believed in for sure. I didn't not prefer one author to another one. This one was bullshit, and this one was amazing. You know, that's just the way. That's those are the prisms we use. The kind of youthly sort of things. Yeah, but. I really was aware of how important it was for me to be exposed to and meeting all these different people from different places. That was like, that was the gift of my college time was seeing a broader world and a bigger sense of everything. I think that's what allowed me to leave school when I did mm. was I honestly thought that was what I needed. You know, my, my mom would have loved me also to have a degree, but that was important. So
1: mm. So wait, you went what were you what did you study, journalism?
0: I was a double major in photojournalism and English lit.
1: Oh, that's cool. The Yeah. No, that's an excellent pairing. Do they still have photo uh, I cuz I saw you gave a talk uh, at your school. Yep. Or at some school.
0: Yep, at University of Missouri. Yep. I do uh, almost every year.
1: Do they have a photojournalism program?
0: Yes, still.
1: People have jobs and stuff? I mean, are there jobs?
0: They, uh, people have jobs. The program's still very active. They still run the Missouri Photo Workshop there. They still run the Pictures of the Year competition there. Mm-hmm. Everyone's doing their thing. I'm sure sh- they probably have. They're probably busier than they ever have been. Uh, oh, and, they're, and they're they're also more aware of photography as a business than ever before, which is thankfully starting to become a greater awareness. Because during my time there, that would that didn't exist. Photography mm-hmm. is a special, neat thing we all got to do, and then be poor working for newspapers until maybe Geographic decided that we were amazing. They would send us around the world or something. That was the path, if there was one. Which, even when I was in school in the late 90s, was already broken. Right. Yeah, I mean, all the photo schools are probably doing fine. You know, the the college, they're mostly connected to big state colleges. There's money for everything. And luckily, football is doing more than fine. It's bringing in money for everything else. So, you know, as newspapers at, at high schools and art departments are being destroyed around the country colleges still seem to have adequate funding to be able to put those kids who are passionate about that stuff in those places. Now, once they leave, what's next? I, I don't know. Yeah. Mm, mm. Um, Cause
1: someone was, I mean, I don't follow these things necessarily, but you know, Thomas Broning, my friend here, mm-hmm. he was saying that at his, where he went to school, which I don't even know where he went to school. He was like, oh, no, they had a photojournalism program, but they had to kill it because there's no jobs and stuff. So I just wondered if that was like. a.
0: Oh, it's interesting. Was- um, I I hadn't heard that headline. I'm not surprised to hear it. And there were schools that had storied photojournalism departments, but it wasn't like a technical identity of the larger school. The School of Journalism at Missouri is extremely famous. That's where the term photojournalism was invented. Oh, wow. So it's produced just. Umpteen thousands of the broadcast journalists and print journalists and photographers in the world so it's it's kicking along it's doing just fine including my aunt who went there who was the who will be forever the longest tenured employee in the history of time inc since that time inc doesn't really exist
1: yeah who is your aunt
0: yeah my aunt carol she retired i think she was at 62 years i think her last official title was like senior editor at large for fortune magazine
1: Oh, really? And she was
0: at Fortune alone for 55 years, and she was at Time, Inc. for a few years before that, and she was an amazing editor and writer and thinker and pioneer, and she's now won, let's see, three or four Lifetime Achievement Awards in journalism.
1: Oh, seriously? Oh, man.
0: Yeah, she's brilliant. She's an amazing, amazing writer, and it's not the reason why I went to Missouri, but it was cool that we shared that.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. That's very cool.
0: Speaking of family... I love a good segue, Timothy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just filled with glee. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, in addition to all the other many reasons, was to talk about photographing family. Because you have had what now, I mean, I've known you before and after, but it now seems like such a singular event in your creative life and a singular project, which has really been incredibly re- well received and has really been important to families around the world now. You regularly have an opportunity to post to your social media, you know, selected correspondence for people who get in touch with you. Oh yeah. About your project with your son, which I don't think I ever I still probably don't know how to actually say it, but it's Echo Lilia.
1: Yeah, that's it.
0: Yeah. So you created this project The book was published in 2010. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It's this project with your son, Eli. You know, I'll let you talk about it, of course, and and frame it. But I have been called upon various times to photograph my own family. I'm actually right now, this, you know, today in the last couple of weeks, been photographing my family at home during the coronavirus crazy pandemic times we're living under. It's a huge challenge Uh because, I mean, even if you weren't being creative, Specifically, photographing your family, being a creative, and being a father, especially trying to be a good creative and a good father, or just being a father, and being having a you know a normal job, or just being a good father and not having any job—all these things are hard. Involving your family in your creative pursuits takes it up a, a huge level, and this interaction and collaboration with your son really came about in a very interesting, organic way. So how did this, what became book project, start?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. So what are we in now? 2020. So 10 years, you know, and it's funny, people discover that project. And I think that like any photo project where we get to know the people like Sally Mann's kids, you know, you think that those kids are still running around on the farm. They're stuck at that age, you know, and it's so funny with that project, people write me notes and I think they think that Eli is still like eight and lives at home, you know what I mean? (laughs) And like, I'm the dad, you know? But no, it's 10 years ago. So Eli was our first son, our first kid. I have two two boys. And the parenting was really hard uh, for me and my wife at the time, where it just didn't seem like we were like getting what other people were getting out of it. You know, it's very challenging. And it's even as we're doing this podcast here, and I can hear your kids playing in the next room. I'm thinking of what that was like, you know, when I was in your shoes and my kids were that age. And there was always this feeling to me that things could teeter into utter chaos that would be out of control that I could never bring back.
0: Yeah, my blood pressure is actually pretty low right this second. But if I hear you say that and I focus on the kids' voices, I can feel it literally rising. Because right now I know my wife is certainly doing some version of like an art project that would drive, I would just start almost shaking at the potential just causality of what's about to happen.
1: (laughs) Well, okay, this brings humor to it. And this brings, uh, I think there's a universal stress in raising kids. For sure. I think we can agree on that. But there was something where it just really seemed to come hard to my wife and I. You know, there was a period where I used to view photography as an escape from my daily life in a way to talk to other people I wouldn't talk to. And previous to doing anything on family. I had done this book, Sex Machines, Photographs and Interviews, where I had photographed people who were very unlike me all across America, who made these kind of you know, sexual inventions. And that was my happy place in photography, where I could tell a story, meet people who are different from me, leave my home, explore the world. And there was a period, you know, after I had kids where my world got really small. Eli, when he was young, there was a lot of challenges and it was almost like around the age of kindergarten, like around Mm -hmm. the age four and five, everything was really about Eli, where it was like teachers at school were asking why Eli was behaving in a certain way. And then at home, he would have these tantrums that would go on for hours and hours and hours, like storms. And Mm -hmm. suddenly that whole, like my world was as small as it was tiny. You know, it was no longer big. It seemed like every thought and every question I was answering had to do with something about Eli. You know, at that time, we had, we had two kids. And, you know, Wilson was much younger. And so with Wilson, suddenly we knew, oh, this seems to be like what like a normal kid feels like or something like that. Suddenly there was like, you know, you had something to compare it to. And right. so there was this period where I felt like, well, let, let me just try to spend time with Eli. And maybe if I photographed him, I could, I could, I could photograph him doing something unusual and I could show it to a doctor and he could tell us what was different about Eli.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
1: And so there was this kind of like, here, let's just make some pictures, you know, let's start doing something. And I think in an attempt, part of it was probably me as a dad trying to use whatever tool I had to try to control the situation. And then some of it was probably just trying to engage with my son. And then maybe some of it was documenting something for evidence, you know? And so within that, we started making photographs, Eli and I. And he was five. And I think it became clear that he didn't want to just be in a photo. Like, I couldn't tell him what to do and make a photo. He wanted to figure out what he would do. He wanted to see the back of a digital camera. Um, If we used a Hasselblad, he wanted to learn how to how to deal with the mechanics of of the camera and take a picture with the dark slide and the ritual of movements that a Hasselblad would require. So suddenly we had something that we could both focus on. We had this little game.
0: Well, you kind of created a language.
1: I think in retrospect, you could say that because you've seen the photos. I think at the time, though, let's not put too much power into it. Let's not put too much story into it. Like if I was a baseball player, It would have been like I went out and played pitch and catch with my son, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, you do what you you can, what you have. But I would say that suddenly it was like this thing that we had together. And I think any kid with multiple siblings, I think, appreciates private time with a parent where suddenly it's not like, okay, gang, here's what we're going to do. It's more like, hey, you and I, let's go do this thing. Right. And so I think there was power in that. And I think probably for me, I'm more relational. I think it was probably a little easier for me to relate to one kid and try to understand him, and try to get him to understand me rather than, all right, family, here's what we're going to do. And so it might have been a better fit for me too. But we started making photographs and like any game, a game would have rules, you know? And I think the rules kind of were like, if there was something he was doing that seemed curious, I would note it. And then we would do it later for the, photo. you Mm -hmm. know, it was nice or in a pretty place or where he could concentrate on it. Or he would suggest things and then he'd photograph me as well with the camera on a tripod. And so it was a game like many game. And I think at the time blogging was something that was happening. Right. And I liked the idea that I could take a picture and kind of finish it, you know, take a digital photograph, kind of finish it and post it. And a lot of that was just the desperation of feeling like you had a project in the midst of sure. child rearing and trying to do assignments and doing all these things.
0: No, this is the proverbial Andy in and the cake factory hitting the gram with uh, with uh, it looking a little bit more exciting than it might have actually been.
1: How How is that Andy in and the cake factory?
0: Oh, I'm saying that, you know, everyone needs something to put into the world that can be under their own you know, to make, to, to redefine things in their own conditions and circumstances to, to present it to someone. Oh yeah. And you know, no matter where you are, there's some way in which it can, it's fodder for content, especially under your own sort of guys. Oh, but, for sure. Yeah. I, you know, I, I feel this all the way. Like I've had more projects that were interesting ideas that I made, to, I, I made like a 5% effort at and only got to the stage that was a blog post introducing this thing i'm working on but never went any further right. than i've ever made actual projects that i completed
1: how do you interpret that that it's more exciting to conceive of the things or something like that or
0: i think part of the way my brain works is probably better fitted for a creative director type role and the ideas themselves are more interesting to me than the actual mechanics of doing all the little pieces huh. that I can get into the details of any particular piece of it. You know, like I love logo design. I love typography. I love all these different things, but I'm not actually any good at them. And it takes me a long time to refine what I'm actually trying to do with them. Right. I'm good at thinking about the big picture. I'm good at, or at least, you know, I I'm good at for myself, finding things which I'm interested in the actual hard work of doing the thing, especially, especially, as soon as you hit that first wall where you actually have no idea what the real idea is until you start doing it and then you start seeing where it is, that is the reality of how things actually work. You know, When I, when I ran Blue Eyes Magazine, you saw so clearly that a photo essay or a photo story, a really good one, it just takes so much fucking effort, so many return trips over and over and over and over and over again before you're like halfway. Mm. and even if you're a great photographer if you truly want to do something special the amount of effort is is incalculable that's just how my my personal take on the thing and so we all need something to share to give value to the daily whatever it is we all you know it's it just it's one way to cope
1: yeah coping mechanism absolutely like something to make me feel that the utter chaos of the days that i had a souvenir from them and i could post that and self-actualize on a blog or right. something like that but I think that is like a basic human instinct, you know like you, you want a, a takeaway from something
0: the very fact that Eli you know I, I certainly do not want to inject any warm fuzzies into the the real story of this project because it alone is is enough and it's special, and that's not me saying it that's the world has been impacted by it. but his engagement with you about the thing that you do, and the vocabulary of photography, that was the thing that always has struck me. Because when my kids decide to care about, you know, this is my own selfish being, when my kids decide to want to learn and then have interaction on something I care about and I can teach them things, you know, it's like, most of the time my kids and I fight about what music's on. Right. And my kids are little, my, you know, my kids are four and six so I don't let them choose the music. Well, that's not true. Sometimes I let them choose the music to play terrible crap because I can ignore it or whatever. We're in the car and I can't leave. They don't get to choose the music. There is no kid music in my car because <laughs> they don't have any musical taste. And so I think it's a great opportunity for them to acquire some. And maybe I don't either, but they're going to have to acquire whatever it is I want to listen to. And we listen to a wide variety of different things. So if today's the day that I want them to listen to, you know, Led Zeppelin 2, today's the fucking day we're listening to Led Zeppelin 2 they actually want to engage in that and they want to ask questions about that and they want to have an actual honest interaction. When you were starting talking about this and when you were blogging about this, when I was seeing a little piece of this, the fact that you had something to engage with your son. And I don't, I don't think I, at the very beginning of this project, there wasn't understanding that Eli was autistic, right? That it was, it was pre that actual clinical test of like, this is, this is why. Oh yeah. But even so the engagement with, your child about something, especially something creative, is a powerful thing. Was that part of this push for this to become a bigger thing? Or was it just, it was just any life raft at all?
1: (laughs) The latter, you know, any life raft at all. And I think that even like, like many things, time has polished that story and made Mm -hmm. it much more romantic than it was at the time. And it wasn't romantic and it wasn't father-son bonding thing, it was the life raft and it was much more urgent. And I don't think at that time that the five-year-old Eli was interested in photography. I think he was just trying to understand his dad. Like mm-hmm. he was trying to like he was trying to learn about me, I think, and what I thought was cool. And I was trying to do the same. And so I mm-hmm. it's almost like let's take photography out of it and make it less important. And think about, I think it was just like, oh, this guy wants to spend time with me. And this is my dad and I'm learning about him type of thing. So I think it was that. And we can't, we'll never know. You know what I mean? Right. I don't think Eli could even answer accurately about it at this time because he was, he was five and he doesn't know why he did something, you know?
0: Sure. And so. I don't know why he did something yesterday, let alone when I was, you know, 35 years ago.
1: Yeah. 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 And so there was, I mean, yeah, I guess I think of it as like father and son working on something together, you know, but I would say that autism gave those pictures, a different feeling Mm -hmm. and a sense of seriousness and a sense of we're working on something together here. And I think it allowed the photos to feel like a relationship or give and take of a relationship. Cause I remember at one point trying to, make pictures like that with my son, Wilson, for some reason, trying to play around. And they didn't feel like that at all. You know what I mean? They didn't look like that. They didn't feel like that. There was an awareness or a sense of self-consciousness or something that a neurotypical kid would have. (laughs) And there's something, I think that that's why people respond to those images. There's a father and son trying to learn about each other, but I think the visual look of things, I think it, you know, it's autism that kind of gave it that air of seriousness.
0: That's interesting. It's then the, the pivot in terms of the way you saw the pictures and the way then the pictures were made was the actual diagnosis.
1: I remember there was an diagnosis, and I remember talking to a friend, and he said, "Well, what do you does that change anything?" I was like, "Oh, no, no." I, I it made things as on a parental level, it made it easier to get doctors on board and to try to get direction and know what books to read and stuff like that Mm -hmm. no that didn't change anything and it didn't change our little game of picture making
0: i mean obviously it doesn't change anything about your relationship to your son and about the daily struggles of having a child in general especially having a young child you know we don't have any reason to think that our son jack right now is neuroatypical. Mm -hmm. we don't even have any reasons to think he's neurotypical either He's just Jack and he's crazy and he runs into walls and every day is a lot. It just is. And a lot of the times it's special in its lotness and a lot of the times it is brutal. Yeah. And he just runs roughshod over our lives in very crazy ways. And he's more of an animated character than a son, really. (laughs) I wasn't asking that you know, suddenly, you know, you were struck by some important thing and that changed. That's not how life works. But the project slowly collected over time and ultimately became this group of, you know, 40-ish images that was collected into a book. Was there a point at which there was a decision or there was, you looked at the, the body of work in some way and saw that there was a way to together make a statement and talk about This relationship, or the
1: the photos we started to create, looked exciting to me because they didn't look like pictures I would typically make. At the time, I was very much into very controlled productions, and I used to like to work with stylists. And then, even with that project, Sex Machines, I was trying to look at people with a sense of humor and a little sarcasm. Or I'm good at that.
0: I liked that work of yours.
1: Yeah, my work was not raw before; it was controlled. And these pictures I was making with Eli suddenly, like to me, they felt like photo one, kind of, where you weren't trying too hard. You were just being like, oh, hey, there's nice light by the window. Let's just make a photo right there. They didn't feel like me. That was one. And then they didn't feel like a professional photographer was trying to impress you. And I thought with Sex Machines and my other projects, I was always trying to impress people. How smart I was, how funny I was, how witty I was, how, you know, I could like, have a little bit of David Letterman-esque humor or something like that.
0: And there was a sense of production, for sure.
1: Yeah, I was trying to show off. And these photos with Eli didn't feel like anybody was trying to show off. They just—they didn't even feel like mine, and they didn't feel like they were made, I think. To me, they kind of felt like they just came. And so, talk about trying to chase something that's working. Definitely tried to like, well, let's see if we can make more of these photos. hmm And as a parent, yeah, like how healthy is that? Is that, would I recommend that? You know what I mean? Where it's like, but I do remember there was this time that him and his brother realized they could fit their bodies into a plastic container that was in the house, like a toy container. And there was the idea that the next day, Eli and I would make a picture when he got home from school in that container. So I knew he was coming home from school and the camera's on a tripod in the living room and the room is trashed. There's there's junk everywhere, but the plastic container is by the window. So it looks pretty and there's nice light coming through and he comes home with a sense of like like a dad coming home from his five o'clock job sitting down for dinner. You know what I mean? Like, oh, OK, here, here's what we're going to do. And he takes off his clothes and gets into the container for the camera. I'm like, OK, lower your head, bring your toes down. And then he's like, all right, I'm done. And so there's like, you know, five exposures, you know, press furiously And he came around to the camera and looked at the back of it. He was like, we got it. (laughs) And there was a moment there that.
0: I wish he had a megaphone right that moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Cut. We got it. It's a wrap. (laughs) Thank you. There was something that to me that was almost like, oh, look, we're peers here for a minute. I'm not like yelling at him not to hit his brother. And I'm not telling him to stop banging a stick against the ground, or I'm not telling him to do anything. We're working together on this.
0: It's pretty intense. It is intense, but it never felt to me. And you know, there are lots of things about this situation and being a parent to a neuroatypical kid that I don't understand. I don't. And I don't know if I ever possibly could unless I was in that situation. We have kids in our family. I have nephews who have been somewhere on the spectrum and have had challenges, and I've spent lots of time with them. And But even with that, I don't think I have any understanding, really, of what we're we're talking about, and the things in which people who see these pictures, who have this daily experience, understand that I can't. However, I also don't see who these pictures could have ever been hurting. The fact that you were making something that was good, and interesting, and not your own work in some way and on some sort of peer level with your son, it doesn't seem exploitative in any way to me. and never did, and I don't know if that's something that someone told you or someone uh, that that's something that you you always had with yourself. But that was never part of this for me. I, I don't. I don't think that that is a part of it. But has that been something? Has been part of this working through that with you?
1: Oh yeah, no, for sure. I do remember, like, I'm working on the project and then. Marcel Saba agreed to represent the project and try to sell it. And he got it in front of the New York Times and they had started the Lens blog. yeah. And they were going to do a thing on this project and they're going to interview me. I think maybe I didn't really, wasn't that familiar with the Lens blog. And then a writer called and she talked to me for a long time. And I didn't really give it that much thought or anything. And then I got a note and it said, oh, your project's going to come out tomorrow. in The New York Times. And then I was like, fuck, I didn't think about this enough. And I'm just like imagining the comments on this online right. thing. And I was just like, this is either going to go very, very badly or no one's going to pay attention, Yeah, like anything. Like either it's going to be a disaster or it'll just be ignored or maybe someone will like it or something. But that was the first time I had this thinking feeling of like, oh, they, what if this is? Here, I'm taking this kid and now the kid is autistic and we're doing photographs and there's nudity. And uh, I I just had second thoughts and I was bracing myself for the darkness of the internet to come and 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 fall upon
0: me. Oh man, a cliffhanger, a first in eyeball history. What will happen next? What will be revealed? You'll have to listen next week to part two. Until then, please check out Timothy's amazing work at timothyarchibald.com or on Instagram at timothy underscore archibald. My thanks as always to Scott Pryor for writing the music for this podcast. Listen to more to Scott's music at scottpryormusic.bandcamp.com. And as always, check us out on iTunes, rate and review, leave a comment. We'll talk to you guys next week yeah, he likes to keep This is my dad's podcast and it's called Ibow. <laughs> Goodbye, you crazy animals.